Only two words can summarize what we experienced already this morning. Well, glory. Amen. Amen. It has been a great morning already. We praise the Lord for His movement and His work in our hearts and our lives, all that we have experienced and all that we have seen to and for the glory of God. So it is good to be able to worship the Lord together this morning. And we have been going through the first, the books of First and Second Timothy, the letters to the bride. Paul writes to Timothy, but it is a letters that are written for the church to hear. So the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these letters for Timothy for the church. So it is the letters to the bride of Christ. And we've looked here now in Second Timothy. Be Faithful, chapter 1, Be Focused, chapter 2, and today we're looking at the idea, the topic of be fearless, be fearless. Now, as we get ready to get started, let me just pause and tell you that I have a confession that I need to make. I have a confession about myself. I got your attention, didn't it? (laughs) Here's the confession. I, I surrendered to preach when I was 15 years old been preaching ever since then, just turned 51. So for all these 36 years, I still get nervous before I speak. That's my confession. I still get nervous before I speak. Until I get to the place and in front of folks, then it sort of goes away. But until then, there's a sense of nerves that happens. This week, as a matter of fact, this week I had the very great privilege of being able to speak before the North American Mission Board's new chaplain's orientation down in Atlanta. And so going into that, not exactly knowing what I was going to be facing and, and what it was going to look like, you know, there's just some anxiousness, some nerves, even some butterflies that come. Okay, what is this going to look like? How, is this, how am I going to be received? Is it going to be good? Is, it be, is the Lord going to work in hearts and lives? And so there's just a few things that I would do and, and like to do before I speak, especially in a place that I'm not familiar with, is I want to make myself aware, some, aware of some things before I actually speak to help me to know how to address any concerns or fears that I might have. And so what like, for instance, for that particular meeting, as I got there, I talked to the people who were in charge. I said, okay, you need to tell me uh, how many chaplains are going to be here. And they told me. And then, okay, tell me what their backgrounds are. Where are they going? You know, are they going? Are they all military chaplains? Are they hospital chaplains? Are they disaster relief chaplains? Are they vocational? What, you know, what, what is sort of where they're going? Along those lines, then, also, I had to Take me now to the room. Let, let me see how the room is set up. I wanted to see the room. I wanted to try on the mic, make sure that everything was good. So just to allay some of those fears that come right before I speak. As you are thinking about maybe this new school year, maybe you're having some fears as well. You know, as you think about raising our kids, our grandkids in a world in which we're living today, and we look out across the landscape of America, and really the world with all kinds of crazy people uh, doing crazy things all over this crazy world, it can cause us to be just a bit a tad anxious, if you will. Can I get an amen to that? You know, and so as you send your kids off to school and to your grandkids off to school or whatever, uh, we, sometimes we think, okay... How are we going to deal? How do we deal with this? And I think what we can find from this passage of Scripture in chapter 3 is that as believers, the Lord would have us to hear these two words be fearless. Amen? Amen. Be fearless. Now, as we look at chapter 3 here, you'll notice that nowhere in this chapter do we see the words do not be afraid. 
But Paul established for Timothy back a couple chapters in chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, For God's not given us, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity or cowardice, but he has given us a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind. And along those lines now, as he comes now to this chapter, he is giving Timothy some things that he needs to understand, some things on the, on the front end to help allay any fears that he may have. Indeed, it was possible for him to have some fears in that structure, in that uh, struggles of life, in that culture, in that church even, as we've talked about before in the place of Ephesus. And so, as we hear what Paul is saying to Timothy, remembering now that these are some of the last words that Paul will write to Timothy as his departure is at hand. So, these are very important things that he wants Timothy to understand. These are also words that we need to hear today as well in our culture, in our lifetime, in, for our kids, for our uh, church, for our country, and all, and, and all that's going on around us. Whether it's the news whether it's sending your kids to school, sending your kids to college, or as I sat in the room with these chaplains who are about to go out on their mission field, whether it was disaster relief or hospitals or the military chaplains, hearing some of the things in which they will face that I never dreamed we'd be facing today as people against all morals that we possibly believe, to have them go out knowing that this is the mission field in which they're going to. You know, as I sat there and listened, I was simply overwhelmed. And it is easy for us today to look at all this and hear all this and do one of two things. Either just brush it off and not be thinking about it, which is the wrong response. Or two, be completely afraid, which is also, as believers, by by the way, another wrong response. And we're going to see that today. Be fearless. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. So in honor and reverence to the Word of God, if you'd please stand as I read this passage for us today. As inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes to Timothy, the church at Ephesus, and he says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort we are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of truth. But now as Jonas and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifested to all, as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. And Lord, while indeed we think about all that is happening in our world, and we think about all that uh, children and grandchildren and students have to face on a daily basis, and what we, was, what we are now deal with on a daily basis in our culture, it, Lord, honestly, sometimes we are afraid. But we are grateful, Lord, that your word teaches us differently. And so, Lord, may you take the word of God and apply it to our hearts and our lives, and may we walk away assured of who you are and all that you've done and all you're going to do. Lord, I I come to you this morning. I am nothing in and of myself, but by the power of Jesus, I pray that you'd use me as your servant. God, may you work all over this congregation today, speaking to our hearts where we need to be saved. For those who don't know Jesus, may this be that hour of salvation. For those, Father, who are your children who need to be pressing forward, pursuing greater with a harder passion after Jesus, Lord, may you speak to our hearts. And Lord, maybe there are places where we have unsettledness. May you bring us peace. But Lord, may you have your way in every heart and life. And Lord, may the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, you see the outline in today's bulletin. And we're going to follow that along, and we're going to see a couple things here. One, as we look at this first point, there are a couple of things that will be underneath that as well, But and each one of those points, as a matter of fact. But the first thing that we need to see here as we think about this idea of be fearless is recognize the warning. Recognize the warning, because as we've said already, it helps to know what you are up against before you have to address it. I feel pretty sure that the folks down in Texas played through every scenario in their mind before this hurricane hit so that they could know what they were up against before they had to address it. It's good to know each and every situation and scenario and try to figure things out before they happen. I also think about our, those who are sending their students uh, off to college or even into high school or middle school. And there's ch- chances are that some of you have had conversations with those students and have said, okay, now look, if you hear this, then you say this. If you see this, then you do this. You've given them scenarios, given them the warnings of just what they can expect and helping them on the front end as they move into this new adventure, this new arena of life. And we think about doctors also. Doctors have to learn about uh, the germs and diseases before they get into the position where the people will be coming to them to know what the causes of all these diseases are. And so just learning what it is that they're up against before they have to address it. That's what Paul is doing for Timothy here in this passage of Scripture. Timothy, you don't need to be afraid. Here's what you're going to face. This is the absolute truth of what you're going to have to deal with. And he says in verse 1, But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Perilous times will come. The word there for perilous means dangerous. It even means savage. Savage times. As a matter of fact, the only other time in the New Testament that this word is used is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 8, verse 28. I'm not going to read it, but it's the passage where there were two demon-possessed men. And the word here for perilous is the same word that describes those two demon-possessed men as exceedingly fierce. 
So Paul is saying that these times in which you are facing and will face will be exceedingly fierce and almost feels like and seems like that it's possible that he is saying that they will even be demonically energized since that's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 8. Boy, that'll just bless your heart, won't it? As to how wonderful those times are going to be. Perilous, savage, fierce times. So, pastor, what do you think? Are we in those times? Yes. Because he says here, in the last days. And brothers and sisters, the last days encompasses from when Jesus first came until he, until he comes again. These are, we are living in the last days. So these things are happening. They have happened And they're going to happen. As a matter of fact, we find in verse 13 that that Paul says that these things are going to get worse and worse. We talked about that a little bit last week. In verse 13 he says, But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Perilous times. Paul says, Timothy, look, you're going to have to deal with it now. But also the church is going to have to deal with it even years to come until Jesus returns. Perilous times. So what do these perilous times look like? There are two things. One is a misplaced love. And we see the characteristics of these people who are in these perilous times and these, who these men will be, men and women will be, as we look here at this misplaced love. The first thing we see here, it tells us that the, as you look at this, this first part of this chapter, you see that there are two bookends, really, uh, that, uh, that describes uh, the, the it sort of gives the summary of who these people are when it tells us in the first verse 2, men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. Then if you skip to the end of verse 4, it says that they'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of themselves, or rather than, rather than lovers of God. So the lovers of pleasure, pleasure rather than lovers of God. So we've got these, these two bookends. They're, they love themselves, they love money, they love pre- pleasure more than they love God. So absolutely, Paul is saying, you're going to see this in the world. And we see this in the world too, right? Don't we see this all over the place where people love themselves more than they love God? They love money more than they love God. They love pleasures more than they love God. If that was not the case, our our churches would be packed today with people who love the Lord instead of loving their pleasures. They want to worship, they'd want to worship him. But I love what Warren Wiersbe says as he sort of summarizes some of who these people are and what the problem is. He says, it's a heart problem. Wiersbe says, the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. Come on now. I mean, that's good stuff, right? The heart of every problem is a problem in the heart of the heart. Everything we deal with, everything that you look at on TV, everything you hear about in the schools, everything you hear about at colleges, everything you see or hear that is a problem, it comes from a heart that has a misplaced love. The love is in the wrong place. But beloved, we need to understand something here as well as we look at this, and we have to be very transparent and honest about what we're seeing in this passage of Scripture. Paul is not just talking about people who are in the world who have this this way interacting this way but he also is talking about people who are in the church this way as well people who are loving themselves lovers of money lovers of pleasure even those who are in the church we'll see that as we move along 
So the question then for you today is, is, as we see here, the problem is a misplaced love. The question for each of us is, is where is your love placed? Has it been misplaced? Or do you still love the Lord God Almighty with all your heart, mind, and soul? I mean, that, after all, that's what Jesus said, isn't it? Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven and following, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with 95% of your heart. Is that what it says? Mm, that's not what it says. With all your heart. You know, I don't know if y'all realized this or not this week, but there was a thing called an eclipse. Did y'all know that? I mean, if you didn't know that, you were hiding in a bunker somewhere, okay? And only a few places, only one swath of our country was able to get 100% total darkness, total eclipse. The rest of us, I was down in Atlanta, uh, and you all here, you know, it wasn't quite a total eclipse. But you know, what I understand is that even, um, it was in places like here and down there, it was even 90-some percent. But it was still bright, you know? Because it wasn't total. Brothers and sisters, if, if, if the Lord isn't, if we don't love him with our total heart, it's still evident that, we're, that he's not the total heart, Right? It's, it's evident in our lives when he does not have 100% of our lives. The Lord says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where is your love placed? Paul says to Timothy, look, you will face people who have a love problem, certainly in the world. But Timothy, guess what? They're also in the church. And so this misplaced love that he talks about here in verse 2 and in verse 4, he then gives us the second part of that and all that's sandwiched in between it in a people who have a messed up character. So it's a misplaced love and it's messed up character. And we see what that looks like. Now, each one of these areas, each one of these characteristics, I'm not going to you know, explain each one because I think they're self-explanatory. But it is interesting how they are grouped together. And we'll look at those. And we see here, first off, it says that men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. And then boasters, proud, and blasphemers. Boasters and proud, that's people who love themselves. Again, these are people who are lovers of themselves. And so since they are lovers of themselves, who are proud and boasters, then they don't mind blaspheming. They don't care what they say. So they're boasters, proud, and blasphemers. They don't care who they say it to. They don't care what they're saying. And then we see the next section, the next little grouping is they're disobedient to parents, unthankful, and unholy. And so this, this, this idea of they are lovers of themselves and lovers of money, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, the, the relationships of people who have a misplaced love, relationships suffer. When our hearts are not right, our relationships suffer. When our hearts are not right with the Lord, our relationships with each other suffer. Amen to that? When this is not right, then this is not right. And so we see that it would be disobedient to parents. So there's relationships there who are suffering. The, the children are unthankful to, toward their parents, and they're unholy toward their parents and attitudes uh, toward them. Then we see further this messed up character is that people are unloving, unforgiving, and slanderers. So people who are unloving toward others will then be unforgiving toward others, and then they'll be slanderers talking about others. Isn't that interesting? 
messed up character because there's a misplaced love. It tells us next, not only that, but it says that they are without self-control, brutal, and despisers of good. Without, so anybody who has a misplaced love, they have a messed up character because they're without self-control. They're the people who say, hey, you know, just do your own thing and enjoy it. And by the way, don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong either. That's without self-control. And those people also then become brutal. Brutal. Have we seen anything that looks brutal in the world? The word means savage. It means fierce. It means like untamed beasts. People who are without self-control, who are brutal, and despisers of good. Reminds me of Ephesians 5, I mean Isaiah 5 that says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light, light for darkness. Messed up character because there's a misplaced love. Then Paul says, look, these are things that you're going to face in the world, also in the church. But then also he says, they're traitors, headstrong, and haughty. Traitors, headstrong, haughty, means, again, lovers of themselves more than lovers of God. So it's always about me, me, me. Then he goes further, talks about this messed up character, where he says that they're having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Meaning that they have an outward appearance of religion, which tells me that they are in the church. People who are in the church who have an outward appearance, it's all about the appearance, this outward appearance of religion, but they never experience the power of God in their lives. This is who these people are who have a misplaced love. They have a messed up character in that they're not really followers of Jesus, but they want people to think that they are. When you look at them, you say, oh, man, everything's good. But in reality, there's no power, there's been no change, and there's no hope because they have no relationship with Jesus Christ. It's only they're faithful to a religion, not to Jesus. They are in the church universal, and they're in the church local. Paul says to Timothy, from such people turn away. So that says that they were in that day as well. They were there. They have been through history, and they are here now. And they will be in the church until Jesus comes. Recognize the warning. He says, turn away from such people. Avoid such people. Be on guard against them, for they will be there. They'll be in the church. And what they do is they're trying to do their best to gain converts. It says creeping, creeping into households. The word is uh, literally worming their way in. You've seen how worms kind of slink and move. Yeah, disgusting things, right? You see how those things do that? Get into those tight places. Well, that's, that's what's happened here. That's what these people will do to get their converts. Those people who are easy pray for them. Be on guard against those people, Timothy, Paul says, and we as the church need to be as well. So we need to heed the warning here that we need to be aware that this is happening, knowing what we're up against as we're facing the world. As we're looking around the world, we see that we're up against this, but also I think we can see the undercurrent of that is also make sure you're not one of those people too, amen? So make sure you check yourself. Let us check ourselves and say, is that me? Is that me? Be fearless, recognize the warning, know what we're up against. And then Paul 
gives us another part of this where we recognize the warning. But the second point is this, to realize the when. Realize the when. As believers, brothers and sisters, we can recognize the warning and we can stand firm knowing that the Lord gives us a win. Okay? Realize the win. What are those two things? There are two things here as well. First off, realize the win is you realize the control of God. I find it interesting, you know, as the Lord who is inspiring Paul to write these words, the Lord knows what is happening and he knows what is going to happen. He's inspiring Paul to write these words of what to expect, what's going to happen in the future. It's as if he knows. Well, he does because he's God. Amen. He knows what's going on. And that tells me about our God, the God that we just sang about, the God that we know personally as Lord and Savior is still in control. He is still in control. We need to constantly be reminded of that, friends, that our God has not lost one ounce of his power. He is still on the throne in heaven. So as we look at these things of what's happening, we look at these, all these mis, misplaced love and the messed up character, and we think, man, that is exactly what we see in our world today. God knew. God knows. And you need, we need to understand that the Lord, as we, he looks at this, he knows this, what we're facing today, understand that the Lord in heaven is not shocked by what he sees. The Lord is not amazed. He is not astounded by the images in which we see all around us today. Is he grieved? Yes. But is he amazed? No. Because, beloved, we need to know that we are moving in a direction and his plan will come to pass and it is happening even as we speak. He's bringing it to pass. So we see the control of God and then the second part of this, realizing the win, is the coming victory. If you look at verses 8 and 9, it says, Paul says, Now as Jonas and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men who are of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifested to all, as theirs also was, uh, as theirs also was. So, Pastor, I don't know if I quite get that. I don't know if I understand what that means. How do you get a coming victory out of that? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Let me help you with it. You see here, those two names, Jonas and Jambres, this is the only place that we find those two names in Scripture. But Jewish tradition says that these two men were the magicians in Exodus 7 through 9 who opposed Moses and imitated what he did before the Pharaoh. So certainly Timothy would have understood who Paul was referring to here. But eventually those two magicians, if you remember the story from the book of Exodus, those two magicians could not continue their tricks. They could only do them for a short amount of time. And then they were revealed as counterfeits as compared to the one true God. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy is, look, Timothy, just as these guys were revealed as fakes, you need to know that these people who have the messed up character and the misplaced love, who are espousing the false doctrines and their ways of life that are counter to Christ, they will lose. They will lose. Just as they were, so these will be. It's going to happen. In other words, Timothy, the forces of hell will fail. The enemy will be defeated. And beloved, as a matter of fact, the enemy has already been defeated at the cross. Already defeated. 
So be fearless, Timothy, because even though we recognize the issues and and know what's before us, recognize and realize the wind that our God is still in control and there's coming a victory. He wins. There's a coming victory. Thirdly, we see this. Recall the witness. Recall the witness. Now, Paul is talking, what I mean by that is the witness of Paul himself. Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, look at the witness of my life. In these next few verses here. You can be fearless because you know ahead of time what to expect, but also know that there's a win because of God's in control, and there, these are com- this is all coming to pass. But also, look at my, fi- my life, Timothy. He says, consider my faith. Consider my faith. Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul says to Timothy, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. So Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, look, you have seen my life. Look at my life, Timothy. Look at what I have endured. Look at what has happened to me. You know my history. You know how I was Saul, the persecutor of Christians, and how God saved me and changed me by his grace, and now I'm the apostle, the missionary Paul. You know my history. You know my life. You know my doctrine, how I'm overwhelmed by his grace. You know who Jesus is to me, Timothy. You know what I have endured. You know my love for people. You know how I have been treated, and yet you know my calling, and you know my purpose, and you know my faithfulness to endure, my faithfulness to be diligent. Recall my witness, Timothy, my purpose, my aim, my testimony, and as you look at my life, may it encourage you to be fearless. Be fearless. You see, Timothy knew Paul's purpose and his manner of life. Paul's purpose, I think, is found in Acts 20, verse 24, where he says, but none of these things, struggles, Paul is saying this, okay? But none of these things, these struggles, move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. That's exactly the opposite of what he's telling the people, like those people are lovers of themselves. He's saying, my life's not dear to me. So that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's his purpose. Paul says, attention, look, you know my life, you know my doctrine, you know my purpose, how I've lived this life out, Timothy. Be fearless as you look at my life. He also knew Paul's manner of life. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, 21, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Timothy, you know that whether I am abandoned, if I am shipwrecked, if I am stoned to death, if I am put in a prison cell, it doesn't matter. For me to live is Christ. He will receive the glory even in my suffering and my persecutions. And if they kill me, well, to die is gain. I will be with Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Look at my life. Recall the witness of who I am in my faith. You know, you have to think about that. Paul was a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ, just like you and me. And so we have to ask ourselves the questions, what, when people see me, what do they see? When they see your life, what do they see? 
Moms and dads, when your kids look at you, do they see a faithful follower of Jesus? Co-workers, wherever you work, do they see in you somebody who is a faithful follower of Jesus outside of church on Sunday morning? Students at school, your fellow students, what do they see in you? A faithful follower of Jesus or something different. Paul says, look at me, imitate me. You can be fearless because I have gone before you and I have been faithful to the Lord. Look at my life. Consider my faith. I trust Jesus for he has never failed me and he has delivered me, Paul says. Matter of fact, you see that there in verse 11. Out of them all the persecutions, the Lord has delivered. Out of them all, the Lord delivered me. The Lord's been faithful to deliver. And even though he doesn't say it here, he says it somewhere else. He believes that also the Lord will deliver him. He's delivered me and he will deliver him. We find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This, because this is what Paul believed. This is what, how Paul lived. This is how, you know, what, he, what was deep within because of the change that took place as he was saved um, on the Damascus Road. Jesus Christ got a hold of his life and changed him from the inside out. He believed with all his heart that he would be delivered eventually, ultimately. Look at where he says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 and following. For, he says, For we do not want to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in, in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. And he was going through a tough time, he says. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Remember, if the resurrection is real, it changes everything. He believed that. And God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Paul believed with all his heart that he was still going to be delivered. He is, at this moment, as he writes to Timothy, he's in a prison cell. He still believes that one day he's going to be delivered. Does that mean he thinks he's going to get out of jail? I don't think, he, I don't think so at all. But what he knows is that he's going to be delivered from this life into the next. Amen? Into the very presence of Almighty God. That's the deliverance he's talking about. He will deliver us. And knowing that the resurrection makes all the difference, we can be fearless. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, recall the witness. Look at my life. Imitate me. Imitate me, Timothy. Imitate me. Brothers and sisters, as we are called to disciple other people, to make disciples, we want people to look like Jesus, but in the process of that, they're going to look like us as well. Oftentimes I wonder, how would Christianity be today if every disciple looked like me? What would Christianity be today, friends? What would our faith in Christ and Christianity as a whole across the world, how would it be today if every disciple was just like you? Would we be advancing the gospel? Would we be faithful to Christ in the midst of hardship and struggles and persecution? Would we stay true in the midst of suffering? I mean, only you can answer that. I don't know about you, but I want to be faithful to the very end. Amen? Amen. Let's imitate the Lord Jesus, but also those who have been faithful to him 
no matter the consequences, no matter the outcome, no matter where it led. Let's adorn ourselves truly as the bride of Christ, loving him completely, being faithful. Consider my faith, he says, and continue in the faith. In verse 14, he says, uh, but you must continue in the things which you've learned, been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Timothy, stick to what you've been taught. Continue to learn these things that you've seen in me. You firmly believe you've been assured of. Continue in those things. Well, what are those things? It's the gospel. Continue in the gospel, how it changes people's lives. Continue in knowing that the Lord is faithful, how he's been faithful in my life, Paul says, how he keeps his promises, that there's no greater joy than knowing Jesus. Timothy, be fearless. Recognize the warning, realize the win, and recall the witness of those who have been faithful. And then fourthly, Rest in the word. As you're facing this stuff, Timothy, it's going to be tough, but here's what it's going to look like. And in the process, realize the win, recall the witness of those who've gone before you, and in the meantime, in the, in the process also, you rest in the word. Because the word is two things. One, it's powerful, we see here. It's powerful. The word of God is powerful. Verse 15 says, And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. The word of God is powerful, friends. These are not just words on pages in a leather book. These are words that are breathed out by God. Inspired by God. Every word that we have on our pages of Holy Scripture have been put there at the supernatural influence of our Creator God. By the power of the Spirit speaking through every writer. That brings about power. It is the powerful Word of God. It is not like any other book. It is the powerful Word of God. And it is powerful not only because of what God has done in it, but what God does through it. It's powerful for salvation. As we read the, the, book, the words upon this powerful book, we recognize that we have a need. And our need is Jesus. We have a need for salvation. And we need him because the book tells us, the Bible tells us, that apart from Christ, apart from being reconciled to God, that we are filthy, selfish, and have a filthy soul compared to the holiness of God. And that we need this Jesus who loves us, who came to die for us on the cross of Calvary. And that we don't just need him sometime, we need him now. And we need him now because until you come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Bible says that we are already condemned. We're under the wrath of God. The Bible tells, the powerful word of God tells us that we need to be saved because we're condemned already. Apart from Christ. In John 3, 18, it tells us, He who believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. So if you believe in Jesus, you're not under that condemnation. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Trusting him by faith. So we find that it is powerful to save, to change people's lives. So Paul is saying, Timothy, Timothy, look, you be fearless. Because as you're out dealing with realizing the, the issues that you're going to face, knowing ahead of time what you're going to be up against, realizing the wind that God's in the control of this coming to victory, keeping in mind those who've gone before you who've been faithful, you need to also know, Timothy, that the Word of God is powerful and that God's Word is, is inspired and it works in the lives of people and, and as they come to know 
the truth, he changes people. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The word of God is the word of Christ, the message of Christ that's found in the word. Rest in the word. It is powerful. But also rest in the word. It's powerful, but it's also profitable. It's profitable. The word of God is profitable. I'm tempted to ask, how many times did you read the Bible this week? But I won't, all right? Just know that I'm tempted. Verse 16 through 17, it is profitable to us. He says, verse 16, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's profitable. It's perfecting us. It's used to, to mature us, to equip us, so we can do the work of God. It's profitable for, as Wearsby says in his commentary, I love what he said here too, for doctrine. Doctrine is what is right. Reproof is what is not right. Correction is how to get right. And instructions in righteousness is how to stay right. Amen? So that's how it's profitable for us. He says, Timothy, you be fearless about what is happening in the culture. You be fearless about what's happening in the church. But you stay true to the word. As we turn on our TVs, as we go to our school classrooms, friends, there will be many people who will tell you that the old word of God doesn't matter anymore. Well, don't you believe it. The word of God is powerful and it is profitable. He says, Timothy, you stay true to the word. You keep about the Lord's business. You point people to Jesus, and you equip yourself and other saints. Because as people's lives are changed, that's how society changes. That's how society changes is by the power of God. It's by the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord that society is changed. We need a government. God has set those boundaries for us to have that. We need education. We certainly need that. We need the institutions of our family. Those are certainly important. But friends, let me tell you, for the world to change, for culture to change, for society to change, it takes the power of God. That's how society changes. People are changed by the gospel. They are changed from the inside out. You can't educate somebody enough to be changed from the inside out. You can't legislate somebody enough to be changed from the inside out. It's a supernatural work of God. And so as people come to know Christ as Savior and Lord, that's how society is changed. One person by one person by one person by one person. Pointing people to Jesus, them hearing the gospel, and then changing and transforming their lives. Are you sure about that, preacher? I'm positive about that. And just to give you an example, here's one. The Welsh Revival, 1904. Man, it's been a long time. But in the country of Wales, there was a revival that that broke out. And 100,000 people came to know Christ in 1904. And what we hear from history is that it changed the society of that day. Here's what is written about the Welsh Revival. Y'all want to hear this? Are y'all sure you want to hear this? Let's make it sure. Good. I was going to tell you anyway, but I just want to make sure. Here's how society changed. 
The earn, it says the earnings of workmen, instead of being squandered on drink and vice, were now bringing great joy to their families. Outstanding debts were being paid by thousands of young converts. The gambling and the alcohol business lost their trade, and the theaters closed down from lack of business. Football. I'm just reading what I've read, okay? <laughs> Football during this time was forgotten by both players and fans, though nothing was mentioned from the pulpits about it, because the people had new lives and new interests. Political meetings were canceled or abandoned. Praise God. Amen. <laughs> they seemed completely out of the question since nobody was interested. The political leaders from Parliament in London abandoned themselves to the revival meetings. Judges were presented with white gloves because there were no cases to try. M listen to this. The mules in the mines had to be retrained because the coal miners no longer used profanity when giving the mules orders. I'm talking about that is change in society, amen? But not only did it stay there in the country of Wales, but it tells us that it spread to the U.S. On January the 20th, 1905, the Denver Post headline read this, Entire city pauses for prayer, even at the high tide of business. In Portland, Oregon, which today is as lost as lost. In Portland, Oregon, in that day, 240 department stores signed a covenant agreement to close their doors from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. each day while their customers and employees attended prayer meetings. In Atlantic City, ministers reported that out of a population of 50,000 in that time, there were only 50 adults who were left unconverted. Brothers and sisters, oh, to see the hand of God move again. To see society changed. Indeed, we know that things will get worse and worse, but there are times, there are pockets of revival and awakening, and I hope that you are praying for that as I am. And the reason why I pray for that is because our God is still able. He's still able. And he still changes people's lives. We had baptisms today. God is still at work in the lives of people. Amen? He's still changing people's lives. And people that you work with and people that you go to school with and people that you know who were behind the counter that you see day in and day out, people who come into your homes, people that you go into their homes, people need to know Jesus Christ and you have the news they need to hear. Let's be faithful. Let's be faithful. As you wonder, friends, about the state of our nation, the state of our world, the state of the church, as you're concerned about the struggles of life, I believe we can find very clearly to be fearless. Recognize the warning. This is what we're up against. Satan's been on the war path for a long time. It's going to get worse. But even so, realize the win. 
that the Lord is still on the throne. He is still in control. The victory over the enemy has been and will be continually secured. And you can recall the witness of those who have been faithful to Jesus throughout their lifetime and rest in the word because it is powerful and it is profitable. And while you're resting in that, beloved, I would say also pray. Pray for God to use his word in his people to bring about awakening and revival all over the world. Be fearless. Don't be afraid. Be fruitful for Jesus. Two things to do. Number one, check the list. What list? You talking about a list on my refrigerator of things I need to get from the store? You probably ought to check that list too, but that's not what I'm talking about. You talking about the list in a couple of months as Santa Claus is going to come check the list and check it twice? No, no you, you do that on your own time. No, we're talking about somebody else here. Check the list. Brothers and sisters, you take time between you and the Lord, and you go back to the first part of this chapter, and you look at the listing of those misplaced loves and that messed up character, and you ask yourself, is this me? That's for the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. The Holy Spirit will guide you in that. Is this me? Check the list. Am I loving pleasure more than I'm loving the Lord? Am I unforgiving? Am I forgiving? Do I have joy in talking about others or talking about Jesus? Am I haughty or am I humble? Am I following the example of faithfulness or faithlessness rather or am I faithful? Am I seeking to grow or I think I already know? You check the list. And then secondly, check your life. Check your life. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him personally? Or is your life one that has a form of godliness, but denying the power of God in you? Do you know Jesus is the Lord and Savior of your life? Is it just a farce? Is it a counterfeit? Is it a religion and not a relationship? Do you know Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life? Check your life. If you don't know this Jesus, you can know him by taking a simple step of faith. Acknowledging that we're sinners in need of a Savior. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Guess what? Nobody's perfect, right? We're all sinners. Because we're all sinners, we need a Savior to save us. And so we turn from that sin, and we turn to Jesus, which is repentance. Repenting of our sin. Lord, I'm sorry for all of my sin. Cleanse me. Make me right with you. As you're turning from that sin, turning to Jesus in repentance, you're at the same time embracing, believing with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for you, who rose again bodily from the grave. You're believing in him, professing him as the Lord and Savior of your life. Saying, Lord, I trust you by faith. I need you to save me. I want you to be the master of my life. I want you to be the king of my life, not me. Lord, I don't want to be a lover of myself or a lover of money or a lover of pleasure. Lord, I want you to have the right place in my life that I love you with all of my heart, mind, and soul and spirit.
Where are you today, brothers and sisters? We need to hear from the Lord today as we have seen Paul wrote to Timothy, be faithful, be focused, and by the grace of God, be fearless. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for this day, for what you're doing in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be fearless in the midst of this world in which we live as believers in Jesus Christ who are children of the King, sons and daughters who have been saved by the grace of God. You are our Father, and we are your children. And so, Lord, we pray that you would guide us and direct us as we come to this time of invitation. For those who may not know you as Lord and Savior, who feel that desire, that call, that pull, that tug to come to you, Lord, let them be obedient and say, yes, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life and come and take either Pastor Joe or myself by the hand and how we will pray with them to come to know Christ. Lord, we pray for that. But also, Father, for those of us who do know you, Lord, that as we've been reminded that we are to love you with all of our heart, what we have found in our own lives, Lord, that is lacking God, I pray that you would help us to recommit and surrender fresh to you and to walk away with you with a desire to have a greater passion for Jesus above all other things. Help us to investigate and evaluate our own lives, to ask if the whole world would be Christians after the imitation of who I am as a child of God. What would that look like? Lord, I pray that you would convict us where we fail you and encourage us where we're living it out. But help us to be recommitted to being faithful day by day by day. Lord, as you're working in the lives of people to make commitments of of obedience by being baptized or joining this church fellowship or called into vocational ministry or whatever you're doing in the lives of people, Lord, help us to say yes to you today and walk away at different people as we come to this invitation. It's all about you. It's not about us. May you work in every heart and life, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand. We're going to say, come as you are. You come. We're glad you can pray silently. Take Pastor Joe by the hand or me. We'll be glad to pray with you. But you come as God's dealt with your heart.